Section 2 of The Romance of Polar Exploration. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Romance of Polar Exploration by G. Firth Scott. Chapter 2. Sir John Franklin was born at Spilsby in Lincolnshire on April the 16th, 1786, and was one of a family of ten. It is said that his father originally intended him for the clergy, but the boy had too restless and roving a nature to look with contentment upon a quiet, uneventful life. Nelson was the idol of his heart, and although a hundred years ago boys were not quite so well provided with books and stories of their heroes as they are today, young Franklin managed to acquire enough knowledge of the doings of Nelson and the other great British admirals to make his heart thrill with enthusiasm for them and for the element upon which their greatness had been achieved. His home was not so many miles away from the coast, but that he had a personal acquaintance from early boyhood with the scent of salt water and the sight of the open sea. That, combined with what he had learned of Nelson and the romantic yarns spun to him by any old sailor he chanced upon, exerted over him the spell which, in all ages, has so powerfully influenced British boys. The long stretch of moving water which rolled between him and the skyline was the home of all that was wonderful and glorious. The ships which sailed over it were, to his enthusiastic mind, palaces of delight, journeying into realms of mystery, adventure and beauty. Over that sea lay the lands where the cocoa palms grew, where Indians hunted and fought, and where mighty beasts of strange and fantastic shapes roamed through the palm groves. Over that sea also lay the realms of ice and snow, of which more marvellous tales were told than of the golden islands of the southern seas. And to sail over that sea, a great yearning came upon him. The life on shore, in peaceful, steady-going Lincolnshire, was too dreary and hopeless for him. Nowhere could he be happy, save on that boundless ocean, with room to breathe, and surrounded by all the glamour of romance. Fortunately for the glory of British naval history, the elder Franklin did not shut his eyes to the attractions the sea had for his son. But, as a wise parent, he regarded the wish to follow the sea as merely a boyish whim. It would be better to let the boy have a taste of the realities of the life at once, and so cure the fancy which threatened to interfere with the paternal desires as regards the clergy. Everyone knew how attractive a sailor's life looked from the shore, and most people knew how much more attractive life on shore looked from the sea. If John wanted to see what a sailor's life was like, he should have his opportunity. And the father, in arranging for his son to sail in a trading vessel to Lisbon and back, probably felt satisfied that the rough fare and hard work he would experience would effectually cure him of any desire for more. But the future Arctic hero was made of sterner stuff than to be turned away from his ambition by such trivial circumstances. He returned from Lisbon trip more enthusiastic than ever for a sailor's life. His father gave way before so much determination, and young Franklin shortly afterwards entered the navy. His first ship was HMS Polyphemus, and he was present on board at the Battle of Copenhagen under the supreme command of his idol, Nelson. His first Arctic experience did not come until 1818, when he had reached the rank of lieutenant and was second in command of an expedition sent out to find a way through Bering's Straits. Two vessels formed the expedition, 
the Dorothea, 370 tonnes, under Captain Buchan, and the Trent, 250 tonnes, under Lieutenant Franklin, the latter carrying a crew of 10 officers and 28 men. Their instructions were to sail due north from a point between Greenland and Spitsbergen, making their way, if possible, through Bering Straits. The ships, which would today only rank as small coasting craft, were soon imprisoned in the ice and so severely crushed that as soon as the winter passed and escape was possible, they were turned towards home. The practical results of the expedition were valueless and only one circumstance in connection with it saved it from being a failure. This was the introduction of Franklin to that sphere of work which, during the remainder of his life, he was fated so brilliantly to adorn. The following year, 1819, saw him again facing the north, this time in company with Captain Parry and with a well-arranged plan of operations. Parry was to remain in the ships and explore at sea, while Franklin was to push along the shores of Baffin's Bay, making as complete a survey as possible. For three years the work was continued, until by 1822 the party had travelled over 5,550 miles of previously unexplored country along the North American coast. Returning to England, Franklin enjoyed a well-earned rest, until in 1825 he was placed in charge of an expedition to complete the surveys of the coast along which the Northwest Passage was supposed to run. With the experience of his former expedition, he was able to work more rapidly on this occasion, and by 1827 he was back again in England with his tasks completed. Not alone had all the surveys been carried out, but he had demonstrated his qualities as a leader of polar expeditions by returning with the loss of only two men. In spite of this, however, nearly 20 years were to elapse before he was again entrusted with a command in the Arctic regions. He was sent, meanwhile, to be governor of the colony of Tasmania, or as it was then called, Van Diemen's Land, a large island to the south of Australia. Here in the metropolis Hobart, the statue of Franklin stands in Franklin Square, and it is curious to think that the man whose work in the Northern Hemisphere is an immortal monument of his name in the region of the North Pole, should have his memory perpetuated by a statue nearer the South Pole than any in the Southern Hemisphere. Verily, a worldwide reputation. In 1845, the expedition started, which more than anything else, tended to make Franklin the popular hero that he has become. The Erebus and Terror, which formed the fleet, had already proved their capacity for withstanding the strain and pressure of the ice blows. They each carried a crew numbering 67 officers and men, and while Franklin took charge of the Erebus with Captain Fitzjames, the Terror was commanded by Captain Crozier. The ships were provisioned for three years, and the task set them was to discover and sail through the passage from the Atlantic to the Pacific Oceans. The intention of the government was to ascertain whether or not this passage existed, and Franklin was instructed to go by Lancaster Sound to Cape Walker, latitude 74 degrees north, longitude 98 degrees west, and thence south and west to push through Bering Straits to the other ocean. Franklin was full of enthusiasm as to the outcome of the expedition. That it would prove the existence of the passage, he had no doubt, and subsequent events justified him. But he had bigger notions than merely proving the passage. I believe it is possible to reach the pole over the ice by wintering at Spitsbergen and going in the spring before the ice breaks up, 
he said before starting, and no one would have been surprised had he returned in the three years with a record of the journey. Public interest was thoroughly aroused in the enterprise, and when the two vessels set sail from Greenhithe on May the 19th, 1845, they had a brilliant send-off. On June the 1st, they arrived at Stromness in the Orkney Islands, and on July the 4th at Whale Fish Island, off the coast of Greenland, where the dispatch boat, Barreto Jr., parted company with them to bring home Franklin's dispatches to the Admiralty, reporting, all well. Later on came the news that Captain Dannett of the Whaler, Prince of Wales, had spoken to them in Melville Bay. Then the months passed and grew into years, and still no sign or token was received from them. Public opinion, stimulated by the interest taken in the departure of the expedition, began to grow anxious at the prolonged silence. But the last dispatches had been received, and the last tidings direct from the ships had come to hand. Over their subsequent actions and adventures, the heavy veil of the frozen north hung, until the intrepid searchers raised it, and learned the sad but gallant story of how the northwest passage was discovered, and the route to the pole marked clearer. When the Erebus and Terra parted company with a dispatch boat on July the 4th, they shaped their course through Baffin's Bay towards Lancaster Sound. Continuing their way, they passed Cape Warrender and ultimately reached Beachy Island at the entrance of the then unexplored waters of Wellington Channel. They passed through the channel, taking such observations as were necessary as they went, until they had sailed 150 miles. Further progress being stopped by the ice, they passed into another unexplored channel between Cornwallis Island and Bathurst Island, which led them into Barrows Straits, nearly 100 miles west of the entrance to Wellington Channel. The ice was now forming thickly around them, and attention was directed to discovering a comfortable haven where they could come to rest and remain while the ice closed in around them during the long winter months. A suitable harbour was found on the northeasterly side of Beachy Island, and the ships were made snug. All the spars that could be sent down were lowered onto the decks, and the riggings and sails stowed away below before the ice surrounded them, so that when the floes began to pack and lifted the hulls of the vessels, there should be no top hamper to list them over. On the frozen shore, huts were built for the accommodation of shore parties, and as the ice spread around and the snow fell, the men found exercise and amusement in heaping it up against the sides of the vessels as an extra protection against the cold, the thick mass of frozen snow preventing the escape of the warmth from the inside of the ships. But where there were fires always going to maintain the temperature of the cabins, the danger of an outbreak of fire had to be zealously guarded against. With all the ship's pumps rendered useless by the frost and the water frozen solid all around, a conflagration on board a vessel in the Arctic seas is one of the grimmest of terrors. The safeguard is in the maintenance, in the ice, near the vessel's side, of a fire hole, that is, a small space kept open by constant attention down to the level of unfrozen water. During the long winter months, there was plenty of time to estimate the progress they had made, and there must have been considerable satisfaction on all sides at what they had accomplished. They had circumnavigated Cornwallis Island and had reached to within 250 miles of the western end of the passage. The first Christmas festival of the voyage was kept up with high revel. If fresh beef was not available, venison was, and there was plenty of material for the manufacture of the time-honoured duff. The officers and men, clad in their thick, heavy fur garments, clustered together 
as the simple religious service was read, and over the silent white covering of the sea and land, the sound of their voices rolled as they sang the hymns and carols which were being sung in their native land. Then came the merrymaking and the feasting in cabins decked with bunting, for no green stuff was available for decorating. The first New Year's Day was saddened by the death of one of their comrades, and the silent ice fields witnessed another impressive sight when the crews of both vessels slowly marched ashore to the grave dug in the frozen soil of Beachy Island. The body, wrapped in a Union Jack, was borne by the deceased man's messmates, the members of his watch headed by their officers following, and after them the remainder of the officers and crew. The bells of each ship tolled as the cortege passed over the ice, and the crunching of the crisp snow underfoot being the only other sound till the grave was reached. There, the solemn and impressive service of a sailor's funeral was said, the mingled voices as they repeated the responses passing as a great hum through the still cold air. A momentary silence followed as the flag-swathed figure was lowered into the grave, and then a quick rattle of firearms as the last loop was paid echoed far and wide amongst the icebergs. Twice more was that scene repeated before the ships cleared from the ice, and one of the first signs discovered by the searchers after Franklin were the three headstones raised on that lonely isle to the memory of W. Brain, John Hartwell and John Torrington, who died while the ships were wintering in the cold season of 1845-6. By July the ice had broken up and the voyage was resumed and passed without any exceptional incident up to the middle of September 1846, when they were again caught by the ice, but 150 miles nearer their destination than the year before. Only 100 miles more to be sailed over, and they would be the conquerors. But that 100 miles was too firmly blocked with ice floes for them ever to sail over. The winter of 1846-7 was passed just off the most extreme northerly point of King William's Land. The ice was particularly heavy, and hemmed the vessels in completely, the surface being too rugged and uneven to permit the travelling in the immediate vicinity even of hunting parties. This was the more unfortunate because the provisions were growing scant and supplies brought in by hunters would have been of great assistance. At the time of starting, the vessels had only been provisioned for three years. Two had now passed, so that only a 12-month stock of food remains in the holes. It might occupy them all the next summer in working through the remaining 100 miles of the passage, and that would leave them with another winter to face, unless they were sufficiently fortunate in finding open water when they reached the end. But on the other hand, they might not be able to get through in the time, or the passage might not be navigable. Either possibility was full of very grave anxiety for those in command, for it was a terrible prospect of being left with 130 men to feed in the middle of a frozen sea, a hundred miles from everywhere. The anxiety felt was shown by the dispatch as early as May, or two months before the first flush of summer was due, of a specially selected party of quick travellers to push forward over the ice and spy out the prospects ahead. Lieutenant Graham Gore of the Erebus commanded the party, which consisted of Charles de Ver, ship's mate, and six seamen. They carried only enough stores to last them on their journey, and each one had to contribute his share to the labour of hauling the hand sledges over the jagged ridges of broken ice. Skirting along the coast of King William's Land, they arrived at a point from the top of which they were able to discern the mainland coast trending away to the horizon with a sea of ice in front. It was the long-dreamed-of end of the Northwest Passage. 
to commemorate the fact, the little party built a cairn upon the summit of the point, which they named Point Victory, and enclosed in a tin canister they deposited under the cairn a record of their trip and its result. Twelve years later, this record was found, and by it, the honour due to Franklin for the discovery of the passage was confirmed. But the manner of its finding must be told later on. Elated with the success of their efforts, Lieutenant Gore and his companions retraced their way back to the ships, for with the end of their journey so near at hand, all fears of the provisions running short were at an end. As soon as the ice broke up, they would be away into the sea they had seen from Point Victory, and sailing home with their mission accomplished, their task completed, and nothing but honour and glory waiting them at home. As soon as they came within sight of the two ships, perched amongst the ice ridges, they shouted out to their comrades to let them know of the success achieved. Round about the ships they saw men standing in groups, but instead of answering cheers, the men only looked in their direction. Unable to understand why so much indifference was displayed, Lieutenant Gore and his companions hurried forward, and as they came nearer, some of the men separated themselves from the groups and came to meet them with slow steps. Soon the cause of their depression was made known to the returned explorers. The leader of the expedition lay dying in his cabin on board the Erebus. Lieutenant Gore, his enthusiasm at his success sadly dampened, went on board the flagship at once, hoping that the news of the victory might still be given to Sir John before he died. He was led into the cabin and briefly told the story of his journey and how from Point Victory he had looked out over the coast of the mainland. The news, the last which Sir John Franklin was to hear on earth, was perhaps the sweetest he had ever known, for it meant that he had triumphed and had won a lasting name and memory for his services to sovereign and state. On June the 11th, 1847, his life ended at the moment of his brightest achievement. Captain Crozier of the Terror assumed command of the expedition, and as summer was at hand, everything was made ready against the time when the ice would break up. Ice saws were fixed, ready to cut passages through the floes when they began to separate, and ice anchors were run out so that the vessels could be walked along whichever an opening occurred. Daily, the crews mustered on board and looked over the ice for some sign of the breaking of their imprisonment, for some loosening of the iron grip of the ice around their vessel's sides, but all in vain. The two ships were wedged in a vast mass of ice, through which it was impossible to cut their way. Instead of breaking up in lesser fields and flows of ice, the mass remained packed, creaking, crashing and straining by day and night as it slowly made its way nearer the coast of the mainland, carrying the ships with it until they were within 15 miles of Point Victory and 60 miles of the mainland coast. Soon the short summer months had passed and the dark period of winter was upon them again, with the provisions daily growing scarcer and the hope of getting their ships out of the ice fainter. Another evil came upon them, when among the members of the crew, scurvy, the dreaded enemy of the early polar explorers, broke out. By the following April, 20 of their number had succumbed to it, nine being officers, one of whom was Lieutenant Gore. On April the 22nd, 1848, the remaining 105 officers and men gathered on the ice around the two ships. They had with them sledges laden with what provisions were left and two whale boats. Slowly and sorrowfully, they bade farewell to the vessels which had been their homes for nearly three years, and set out to march over the ice to the mainland. 
Their plan was to push on until they reached the Great Fish River, where they might obtain succour either from travelling bands of Indians or at some outlying station of the Hudson Bay Company. Travelling at the rate of five miles a day, so rough and difficult was the route, they arrived on April the 25th at the cairn where Lieutenant Gore had left the record of his journey over a year before. The canister in which it was enclosed was opened, and around the margin was written this brief, pathetic story. April the 25th, 1848. HMS Terror and Erebus were deserted on April the 22nd, five leagues north-northwest of this point, having been beset since September the 12th, 1846. The officers and men, consisting of 105 souls, under the command of Captain F.R.M. Crozier, landed here in latitude 69 degrees, 37 feet, 42 inches north, longitude 98 degrees, 41 feet west. The paper was found by Lieutenant Erning in a cairn supposed to have been built by Sir James Ross in 1831, four miles to the north, where it had been deposited by the late Commander Gore in June 1847. Sir James Ross's pillar has not, however, been found, and the paper has been transferred to this position, where it is thought is where Sir James Ross's pillar was erected. Sir John Franklin died on June 11, 1847, and the total loss of life by death in the expedition has been to this date nine officers and 15 men. Start tomorrow, April 26, for Backsfish River. The record left as a sign, should it ever be found, of the direction they had taken, the party resumed their dreary march over the frozen shores of King William's Land. The men formed themselves into teams for the purpose of dragging the sledges and the whaleboats, and the officers marched beside them, helping them and encouraging them. Even the snail's pace of five miles a day became too severe a strain for many of the men, weakened as they were by attacks of scurvy and reduced rations. Soon it became evident that if a place was to be reached where help and food could be obtained before the provisions were absolutely exhausted, it would be necessary for the stronger to push forward at a more rapid rate. A council was held, and it was decided that the strongest should take enough supplies to last them for a time and push forward as rapidly as possible, while the remainder should follow at a slower rate and by shorter stages. The majority were in the latter division, and only a few days elapsed after the smaller band, numbering about 30, had left, before the ravages of scurvy and semi-starvation made it impossible for even less than five miles a day to be covered. So debilitated were all the members that further advance was abandoned until they had, by another long rest, tried to recuperate their energies. But the terrible bleakness of the place where they were wrought havoc among them, and every day men fell down never to rise again until the only hope for the survivors lay in returning to the ships, where at least they would have shelter. Wearily, they staggered over the rugged ice ridges, each man expending his remaining energies in striving to carry the provisions, without which only death awaited them. Men fell as they walked, unnoticed by their companions, whose only aim was to get back to the ships, and whose faculties were too dim to understand anything else. Blindly, but doggedly, they stumbled onward, silent in their agony brave to the last, when worn-out nature gave way and they sank down, one after the other, until none was left alive, and only the still figures, lying face downwards on the frozen snow, bore mute witness of how they had neither faltered nor wavered in their duty, but had died, as Britons always should die, true to the end. 
Their comrades, who had left them to push forward for help, were equally stolid in their struggle against overwhelming odds. As they were crossing the ice between King William's land and the mainland, a great cracking of the floes startled them with the fear that the ice was breaking up. Hastily placing their stores in the whaleboat, which they had been dragging in addition to the hand sledges, they abandoned everything else, fearful lest the sudden opening of the floes might cut them off from a further advance. Harnessing themselves to ropes, they toiled and struggled onward with the boat. They reached the mainland, but at a terrible sacrifice, for in their haste they had left much of their scanty supplies behind. Their food ran out, and hope was almost dead when they espied a small camp of Eskimo. Fresh life came to them as they learned that they were nearly up to the Great Fish River, and they bartered away some spoons and forks to John Franklin's star, part of a watch, and some other metal articles to the Eskimo for a recently killed seal. Had they waited longer with the natives, they might have obtained more food and have recovered somewhat from their fatigue. But in the mind of each was the memory of their stricken comrades toiling on behind and hoping from day to day for the arrival of relief. Personal feelings were forgotten before that memory and the little gallant party resumed its way, fighting with all the dauntless bravery of heroes to win help for their weaker friends. Fighting till their limbs refused to move, till their starving bodies were numbed and frozen. Then, falling in their own footsteps, they passed away, one by one, silent and uncomplaining, to the list of Britain's honoured dead. End of chapter 2